Hey everybody, this is Dr. Ben Pearl with Fit Foot You. And today we've got a reverb. We had a little reverb last time. We got a good conversation started with Dr. Ted Forkham. But we're going to get even more information, a deeper dive. He just came back from Eugene, Oregon from about a week ago, and he's going to give us some information on sports chiropractic, dealing with elite athletes, and some tips on how we can better our bodies. Welcome again, Ted. Great to have you again. Um, last time we had, we ran into a couple technicals, but uh, here we are again. And thank you again for connecting. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity coming back. And uh, uh, it's also been a great, great week in the interim. So it's uh, nice to catch up again. All right. So when we last left off, and I want to just frame things so that people that didn't hear the last podcast, you are you've been connected from everything from the PGA to the Western Hockey League to uh, the uh, Olympic game efforts uh, with track and field in particular. Your background as an athlete is what, Ted? What, what was your entryway to athletics? Well, I ran track in high school, college and post collegiately. And, uh, you know, now I like to think that uh, instead of being an unhealthy athlete, I'm like trying to be a little bit more healthy and do a mix up the variety. So I just got back from an epic, absolutely epic mountain bike ride. So try to jump on the bike and do some kayaking and uh, some weightlifting, do a lot of BFR training, blood flow restriction training, and uh, try to be a little bit more healthy because, you know, athletes aren't exactly the most healthy people. And, uh, you know, part of what got me into healthcare is many of the injuries I sustained myself as a uh, as an athlete. You know, you're always pushing that line, and uh, maybe I didn't have the fidelity that many other people have to figure out the difference between training and overtraining. No, that's been a huge thing, and you got me onto uh, this wonderful app, Ask a Question, which you're a part of, and we'll talk more about that. But they were talking about the importance of the interval of sleep. And you've got some stuff that you've been working with on the on the waves of sleep that you've been using using in your practice and for your for your athletes and for your. Tell us a little bit of that and how it's helped you avoid some of the jet lag and uh, you know helping your athletics uh, recover. Yeah, it's actually been kind of a game changer for me. Uh, initially, I was told that I was going to be uh, in uh, in charge of this be uh, before the already Olympics. It is. Uh, pulse electromagnetic frequency and it, my initial thought was like oh great put the chiropractor in charge of the magnets i thought it was going to be hocus pocus and to be honest i was right. a little bit bitter about it but at the end of the day i did look up the research on it and at that time there were over thirty thousand peer-reviewed citations all of which had you know nice positive outcomes they weren't great in size and in dimension but there was no negative side effects the outcomes all appeared to be favorable and and so all, all directions pointed to go. It's so safe. So you can use PEMF in a very targeted format, such as uh, fracture healing. Uh, you can use it in very isolated, just as like target one joint uh, or one area of the body. Or you can use it in a much more global sense and use it to influence the whole body. And so when you're using it for the whole body format, it's like getting a power nap uh, over a period of 16 to 24 minutes. It's, it's really fantastic. And you can set it, depending upon the device, to kind of uh, reset your circadian rhythm. 
and uh, that, that allows you to get back on time zone a little bit better. And uh, so that's, you know, that's how I've used it. I found it to be kind of a fantastic tool because when you travel, you're traveling time zones, kind of the general rule of thumb is that, you know, for every time zone that you change, you kind of take it, like you drop back and, and give yourself an extra day to, to regroup. And with this, if you can regroup faster, it allows you to train harder sooner. And of course that means more gains as an athlete. For me personally, what it means is I'm a lot more productive. I can get more stuff done, but also I find if I can kind of get it on the front end, you know, you just feel like you might be getting the inklings of a cold. If I can get it right on that front end, then oftentimes I can kind of uh, uh, had, boost that, that immune system. This, yep. I had that feeling this morning. Um, we're in the swamp here in uh, Washington, DC, both uh, literally <laughs> and figuratively. And, uh, I actually, you know, because I was traveling just to be safe for my patients, I took a, a COVID test this morning because I had a little catch in my throat. I mean, I felt fine fatigue. But, you know, as we're in the world we're living, you got to be extra vigilant. So I, I went ahead and uh, I, you know, luckily tested negative. But uh, and I I'd already had it uh, uh, two and a half months ago. So, I, you know, logic wise, it would have been uh, most likely immunized. But there's these cases of people getting it again. So for our listening audience, for people that want to get these mats, do you have a couple that you would refer them to that you think are, you know, maybe not the state of the art, but entry level that are are, are, are solid, uh, that are approachable? For the yeah, people you know, I, th I think for like the home user, there are two that I'd recommend. One's uh, by IMRS, and it's, uh, you have to go through a dealer for it. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with that, you're looking at a device that's going to be approximately, I think, like, Somewhere between four and five thousand, which yeah, it's a big chunk of money, but it's it's a. Uh, if it's your uh, health, though, man, I mean. It, exactly, and, yeah, and uh, and so, and, and that one's kind of an industry standard. Uh, another one is uh, by uh, Oxford Medical. The kind of acronym is OMI, mm -hmm. and there you can get a device for much cheaper. You can get something that's probably going to be in the range of, like, say, uh, twelve hundred, fifteen hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. and so they're kind of nice. They pack up real well. And, and uh, you know, there are a couple of us stocks that we just carry cart them around with us. Uh, and they've, they've been around for a long time, so they're incredibly safe. Used a lot in, in veterinary racing. It's, you'd be surprised how much healthcare advances in, in sports medicine comes out of the veterinary cycle, you know, because you have performance animals that, you know, you can go through some basically trial and error on, which you can on the human level. And so a lot of these things came out of veterinary medicine. And when I worked with uh, Major League Soccer, many of the athletes that had played in the Premier League were already very familiar with this. So they've, they've been using this, you know, for years over in, the, uh, in Europe. Most of the technology came out of uh, uh, Switzerland and Germany. Right. Now, you also um, have some other unique things. Before we depart from that, let me just say, um, that there are a lot of peer-reviewed uh, literature uh, information on bone stimulators that are now insurance-approved. So I can go to uh, United Healthcare and say, you know, this is a delayed union fracture of the tibia, uh, the tibia fibula area here in the ankle, and we want to use this bone stimulator. And then you'll go through some paperwork, and maybe they'll 
uh, they, you know, sometimes they'll have a fresh fracture indication if it's a fifth metatarsal area, which is a common, notoriously, common. yeah, common injury, and then uh, notoriously bad uh, blood uh, avascular zone there. Now, for this stuff, where are we with the peer review literature? I realize it's a similar technology, but where are we with the random control, uh, double blinded? Or are we at um, early in the stages with that? Give me a sense of which people want to kind of do their due diligence. No, no, there, there's a great deal of research out there. So PMF has, like, say, back in 08, there was over 30,000 citations. So there's a lot of information out there. And there's different types of PEMF. So that's the hard part is from the average person looking into this, there's the global systemic overall body PEMF devices that you would use to aid in levels of alertness, reduce anxiety, sleep insomnia, uh, depression, uh, and help you recover and get back on time zone, uh, reduce jet lag. And then there's the more powerful regional or local stimulators, uh, which you can have for like specific, like hip, shoulder, knee, ankle treatment. And then uh, those units are gonna be, gosh, anywhere from 10 to say $30,000. And then you have your kind of your, your small bone stimulators, much like we just talked about for that fifth metatarsal line. So there's, there's pretty good studies out there. And, you know, the best thing about it is that, you know, there's really no complications associated with it unless you happen to have a pacemaker. And in which case, I think it's kind of self-evident. You don't, probably not right. the thing you want to hang out with and you're probably not wanting to wave your, you know, your, your cell phone and your computer over the device as well as your credit cards. Well, you know, maybe sure, sure. maybe your spouse's credit cards, just to, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but certainly not yours. And uh, if you plan on using them again, yep. You had also uh, talked about last time, and I, I heard more about it because I listened to one of your other podcasts with uh, with Greg, the uh, uh, triathlete. Greg, uh, Greg Bennett with uh, Be with Champions. Yes, yes, and he has a great podcast uh, as a as a cross reference. It's it's uh, you know a lot of lot of heavyweights in in all areas of uh, athletics and coaching, and 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 gox. Uh, but what I was going to say is that he he pointed something out that I think is important that I want to drive a little harder on this uh, segment of the podcast, which is the importance of the pre-tuning both mentally and physically for the athlete. And, you know, you and I were talking when I was, uh, you know, on vacation, we were talking about why you guys have become sort of the Swiss army knife of uh, the Olympic uh, support team for the athletes. Uh, there's a lot of redundancy in my specialty with podiatry. I'm not saying that we, what we do isn't, uh, um, very specific, but there is a crossover with an ankle fracture with an orthopedic surgeon and with, you know, a primary care doc that might uh, put them in a cam boot before they go to, uh, you know, get surgery if they needed to do that or whatever, follow up with bone stimulator, et cetera. What you guys do, though, is very specific to a lot of the active release techniques that you've done and, and then a lot of the other things that you're bringing to the table with all these, um, I guess, shared technologies that we're all using to rehab our athletes. You maybe put uh, what you do with the tune-up and in context with uh, how chiropractic became such a 
uh, a niche, a solid niche uh, in the Olympic uh, uh, training camps. Well, you know, I think that when you look at treating athletes during at an Olympic level, it's different than what the average person sees a healthcare provider for. Most most healthcare pro- uh, patients come to a healthcare provider because they have pain, and versus most uh, athletes go to a healthcare. Uh, well, go, come to a chiropractor because of performance. So they may not be having pain. Their coach might be identifying a technique that they're not able to, to maneuver or coordinate, or they don't have the range of motion. They're not getting into a position. Uh, and so athletes are incredibly specific. I go back to a pole vulture I treated in, in the mid-90s. He came to me, and he's going down a runway, and he says, yeah, as I go my, down the runway, as I go to plant the pole, my knee's tracking about five millimeters laterally. So I think I have a right upper sacroiliac joint dysfunction. And he's actually he's specific about it. He says I have right upper SI joint flexion dysfunction. And Yeah, I mean, that's nailing it, right. Right, exactly. Very in tune. Of course, you know, I'm thinking, ah, yeah, no way. And in fact, that's exactly what it was. They're incredibly in tune. So they understand how these little minor changes affect their performance. And and it's, you know, that creates a great niche for what we do as chiropractors. So we have the ability to, to work on optimizing uh, joint function, muscle firing, uh, affecting range of motion through a variety of techniques. And uh, uh, so it works out well for us from a performance standpoint, but we also have the ability to uh, treat acute and chronic injuries. And when it comes down to working in an athletic venue, then it's nice when you have a large cadre of other practitioners where there is overlap because then you can get like other opinions uh, on what's best. You know, when you're talking about at a, an event, you know, doing surgery isn't going to help that athlete at that venue because you're not going to be able to do surgery on someone within an hour and then have them go back out and compete. That surgery option is going to be something that's being, probably going to be post-competition. And, but it's always nice to have you know, that collaboration is absolutely essential and having a, a good kind of team of practitioners and, and having that quality expert minds, you know, brain pool to, to go and bounce things off of to find ways to optimize an athlete's performance. It's, it's I think, the best thing for the athlete. And for me, I just find it uh, a very educational tool to be able to, you know, grow yourself as a practitioner. Now, you've also grown, I guess, the sports medicine cadre of health professionals. You had a talk you were telling me that led to some action with the state reciprocity. Uh, Tell me a little bit about how that came about. And what I'm talking about for those that uh, uh, aren't glomming onto this is that when you treat an athlete in another state, technically uh, and formally, you were sort of under the auspices of um, the, the governance of that state health board. Uh, you, uh, you had some conversations amongst some others that, uh, that have led to some changes. So where do we stand uh, with that? And, and give, us, give us kind of an update for the, the, health, uh, the health docs listening to this about volunteer work and the type of work you do. In yeah, yeah what kind of... I'm a board member on the Joint Commission on Sports Medicine and Science, and this organization is an organization of other members. So within there, we have all healthcare 
uh, professions within the U.S. Uh, in terms of sports medicine. So that goes from anyone from sports vision, psychiatry, nutrition, people who test for materials and helmets, the Olympic Committee, NC2A, high school federations, podiatry, uh, the Center for Disease Control, you name it, part of it. As part of this uh, organization, I gave a short talk on uh, multidisciplinary uh, event coverage, health uh, medical event coverage. And one of the components I brought up is the difficulty of here you have may have the best athletes in the country, but you might have troubles getting the best practitioners to be able to treat the best athletes in the country because they simply can't cross state lines because of licensure. And, and part of this is a twofold problem. So, for example, let's say that you're working for a team and that team's in the playoffs, and now you're having to go from Washington, D.C. to L.A. for a playoff game with your team. And you're going to continue to treat, you know, your team members or, you know, a specific member of the team. But your licensure won't protect you while you're there, which means that not only are you violating the Medical Practice Act of that state, but also you no longer have malpractice coverage. And so that that creates a liability for the practitioner. But equally as important is that there's no longer malpractice coverage to protect the patient or the athlete in that case. So let's say that it's a medical practitioner and they're evaluating a, uh, an athlete with a concussion and they uh, make a mistake and the athlete gets sent back in too early and they have a catastrophic injury. <clears throat> well, the doctor's assets are going to liquidate very quickly should there be a malpractice case. And as a matter of fact, in that situation, it probably liquidate through the course of the trial, meaning that at the end of the day, the athlete wouldn't have any additional assets to help them cover their health care expenses. So uh, several uh, groups as part of the Joint Commission of uh, Sports Medicine Science gathered together, uh, most notably OASS. M and uh, NATA, um, uh, American College of Sports Medicine, among others. Podiatry was part of it, as well as chiropractic. And uh, gathered together to uh, initiate a bill called the uh, Sports Medicine Licensure Clarity Act. And it took four years to get this bill through our contentious uh, House and Senate, but it finally made it through, which allows practitioners to travel across state lines if they're with a team. And so it's, it's a big change. You know, I would have liked to have seen this in addition cover major events, say like uh, the you know, New York Marathon or, you know, other large events. They just had the World Games in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, uh, in, in situations like that where you can, for major events, bring practitioners in from other states without any concern about uh, uh malpractice and licensure. You know, sometimes you can get temporary licensure. Uh, many states allow for that. Others require you to go for full licensure or you have to plan so far in advance. Like California for my board, you have to plan anywhere from 90 to 180 days in advance. It's like, yeah, I know. And in, in, uh, I had a colleague in Atlanta, uh, or he wasn't in Atlanta, but he was going to try to go to the Atlantic games and they had a two week prep course or something that they had to do to you know comply with whatever the state did to pull him if you and so he ended up saying well i'm just going to go with the guatemalan 
uh, contingency, and that's what he did. And there was a lot loosey gooser about that, so he was able to to get in and actually have more access beyond the Olympic uh, Village to the events. Because when he said that the folks that went through the uh, the podiatry rep that was there, a, a doc by the name of uh, uh, Dr. Julian, uh, they were confined to the Olympic uh, Village was their scope. So it, they even, I guess, at times control where you're going. So now let's just say so that it's very clear for people listening. If uh, if I'm a doc and I want to uh, I want to, let's say, be uh, do a volunteer thing for a special Olympics in uh, New Jersey and I'm a, a Virginia licensed. Am I going to have a problem with that under the current act or is there a special waiver that still has to be um, uh, signed? Off and, and unfortunately, that's still going to be a problem. And now if you went with the say you're from Virginia and you went from a team that's competing in the Special Olympics from the state of Virginia. Now you can work, but you have to work just on those team members. So you can't work with any other people from say uh, like Kentucky or Texas or or Washington or anywhere else. Right. You, it's yeah. like you're a roving missile with that team uh, in terms of what you're able to do. Right, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so you've got, I'm sure, some great stories, some uh, that are uh, compelling, scintillating, and maybe we should start with that. And then I, knew, <laughs> I know we, we, we talked with a, a couple others. Maybe you can homogenize them to a certain degree just so you can, uh, you can let, you know, change the names to protect the innocent, so to speak. But first, let's start with an exhilarating story. Uh, wouldn't necessarily have to be a miracle recovery, but just something that you were a part of that you want to share with uh, the listener audience, you know, in any, you've covered so many uh, uh, arenas, Ted. So whatever you want to choose, you know, this is, that's kind of a tough one to narrow down. Um, Give me a couple then. Give me a couple. Off the the top of my head. So I had a great opportunity to work with, with uh, men's water polo in, in the Beijing Olympics. And right before uh, departing, we're in uh, San Jose, and uh, our goalie uh, couldn't raise his arm over his head, which for water polo is kind of an important thing. Yeah. And uh, so he had basically until I think it was like 10 o'clock that night to, to be able to raise his arm over his head. Otherwise, he wasn't going to the Olympics. Uh, he was going to, you know, they, hey, they're just not going to take you. And so I got called in maybe like it was late. It had to have been like nine fifteen or something. <clears throat> kind of, I, I think I was like the last resort to work on this guy. And you know, while I was able to get him into full extension over his head, he still had some pain. But but I was able to get him there. I was super proud about that moment. And uh, then I saw him at least twice a day to the Olympic games uh working on everything from his big toe seriously worked on his big toe a lot nice. uh to his shoulder and uh but that was a great moment uh yeah another one that i loved was a which is almost like a disneyland moment and so a, a pole vulture who had to bail when you bail that means you're giving up on your jump but instead of going into the, the padded pit she fell backwards onto the track onto her back and she's <clears throat> laying on the track not moving and people ran across the far end of the track, grabbed me, and, you know, I evaluated her, determined that there was no fracture, she doesn't have a concussion, and uh, was able to 
assess her and figure out that while well, she had an injured her SI joint, it spasmed up on her and she couldn't really move. So I was able to perform this manipulation on her and she literally got up and I think she either won or took second in the comp competition uh, against Stacy Dugilio, who was a world record holder at the time. And uh, but it's kind of funny that she's able to get up, perform. You have only so much amount of time that you have to, to before you can jump again. And she was able to do that. And, uh, it was uh, it looked like something that, that was made for TV. Uh, kind of well, kind of it, humorous. It's, it's great that you had a, a Disney moment there. I worked with an athlete that was uh, <laughs> she was a miler, and uh, and she. Um, had an Achilles tear related to uh, pregnancy because, as you know, mm -hmm. as everybody knows, your ligaments lax a little bit uh, in preparation for childbirth, and so you're more susceptible. And then what also happens, right, is there's changes in the bone uh, that occur, and so she had uh, suffered that, and uh, we were we were humming along at a good pace, but. She was really, really trying to get back to world championship form. And uh, unfortunately, it was one too many box jumps and one too many intervals uh, that led her back into the injury chair. Uh, and subsequently, she ended up getting, uh, she got a, a small avulsion fracture um, uh, at the attachment of the Achilles tendon. Uh, and subsequently had that uh, surgically repaired at uh, UVA. And that was probably the end of that window for her uh, for Olympic glory. So uh, <laughs> unfortunately, it's not always a Disney ending. We try our best, but, uh, you know, sometimes it's just circumstance and the really the level of, um, you know, sort of plowing through the pain for better or worse that sometimes is, uh, at, you know, for the peril of the athlete, unfortunately, because they, they push past uh, the recovery stage. Right, exactly. It's kind of a tough deal when you get, you know, it's, it's a tough marker because athletes here, you know, you're, you're told to train and work through pain. It's a hard marker to distinguish when you have injury pain and when you have, like, exertional pain. Uh, and I think that's a really big differentiating factor. To me, identifying that, Exertional pain is going to be something that's more global. It's usually in the muscle belly, not in a joint space. It's not going to be pinpoint. It's uh, not going to be sharp. Uh, and so anything that's going to be sharp in a joint, on a tendon, those are things that you shouldn't train through. Anything that's kind of dull, achy, burny, it's in a muscle belly, well, and, and it's on both sides, key element. You know, those are things that might be exertional pain that you can't work through a bit. So right. kind of kind of uh, on a podiatric level, you might appreciate this. I was medical director for a marathon, and, and the, kind of what I would do is I would, you know, work on people at the at the start line, and then during the race, I would kind of follow around and kind of get my eyes on some people I have a little bit of suspicion on and how they're going to fare through the course of the race. And and I came across this guy on the side of the road and uh, evaluated him, and it looked like he had a cuboid bone dysfunction and. I just taped a quarter uh, underneath the insole at his cuboid level, and he was able to continue on and complete the marathon. And, and uh, apparently he did all right with it. He, he made a, a point to come back to the medical tent, give me a, a return on my investment, gave me a roll of quarters. It's like, see, of quarters that's developed cool. interest. <laughs> that's, that's, an, that's, an awesome, that's an awesome story. Um, 
so uh, on that note, you see uh, you, that uh, very innovative MacGyver uh, cuboid pad, as it were. <laughs> we've, we've, you and I have had a conversation about uh, kind of an interesting topic, uh, the over-the-counter uh, type orthotics. And I know you're involved with, um, uh, I think, a more reputable uh, one. And I'm not saying that there's disrepute. But I think there's uh, sometimes uh, overindulgence in things uh, that some uh, of the chiropractic industry use, uh, something called foot levelers, which is a very flat insole. You're, you're certainly not going to uh, hit a home run with it, but you probably won't kill anybody with it either. It's just a very low profile uh, orthosis, if you want to call it that. Um, what's your what's your spin on that? And, and kind of give me your thoughts on, you know, the more sophisticated uh, over-the-counter inserts that have been developed. Uh, and, and, you know, obviously when we see patients in front of me, sometimes it's somebody with uh, almost like a club foot that you really need uh, a, a much more substantial custom-made device. A absolutely. And, you know, these devices are, are not going to get anywhere close to developing uh, some type of uh, functional viability for someone with a club foot or a... Uh, stage four tibialis posterior tendon dysfunction, tendon ruptures, uh, rocker bottom foot, anything to that effect. I mean, and as a matter of fact, they might be detrimental and make them worse. Uh, yeah. but, but I think that, you know, with, with the pool of the average person, an over-the-counter device might be just fine from a temporary measure. But I really think that if you're going to maximize the effect of an orthotic, having it custom made to optimally contour to your foot and, and the goal of there is not that you want to have your entire foot weight bearing you want to have proprioceptors that are located throughout your foot uh, stimulated by the device and that can i believe will improve your ability to feel where your body is in space and as a result you'll be able to control your foot movement patterns more effectively uh, and so i think that going to a device that is contoured more specifically to the patient is going to, in my view, be more effective and, and probably have better outcomes. I also really think that based on some of the research with, you know, Nick, uh, uh, up in uh, Canada, he came out with a nice study, I think it's about almost 20 years ago, uh, that, you know, it should feel pretty comfortable out of the gate. So, you know, if it's, it's this device that really you know, has to be broken into for a long time for the average person. Again, you know, there's some times that you're going to have to adapt to a device. But for the most part, the average person, it should be fairly comfortable to get used to. And I, I think that's maybe where some of these other products that are out on the market uh, that many of my colleagues and others use maybe have some of their shirt fallings, uh, you know. Yeah, and you told me, you told me a humorous <laughs> anecdote about uh, a legend of our profession. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, who shall remain nameless? Who you've got some feedback that he ended up with? What 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 sort of uh, device did he come up with? It was just sort of a cookie cutter kind of a thing. It was like a foot leveler. It's very similar to a foot leveler, which yeah. you know they have like these little components that are standardized components that are you know pulled off the shelf and conglomerated yep. into a device, which at times I think can be fantastic. I do that for temporary devices for sure. Yeah, yeah, because it's right there. Right, exactly. Just interject that one of the really cool things, and you're probably aware of this, is the 3D print boom, which uh, right people that are really uh, entrenched, and I've become more entrenched in that uh, industry. I have a 3D printer, 
but uh, see it as the future of uh, not just orthotics, but potentially footwear, although it's going to be interesting because it's a lot easier to pump out a gazillion, uh, you know, Brooks beast than it is uh, the Brooks beast uh, division three midsole, you know, because, you know, it's, it's just everything is volume driven with uh, a lot of the shoe companies and, you know, the, the, the quest for the best uh, bang for the buck. Well, it's, a, it's the economy of scale. And so, yeah. you know, I was really fortunate last night, I, ironically, I had dinner with a, a, uh, a footwear of biomechanist. So it's really kind of, you know, we have a great conversation for a dinner. Uh, I, I feel bad for the, uh, uh, for the other people at the table because we were kind of consuming about all the mechanical details and each, you know, these shoes that he pulled out, he pulled out different lasts that these shoes were built around and, I'm sure it had to be completely mind-numbing for everyone else at the table, but I was kind of like a a, a, a lab looking at a tennis ball. I was just enthralled with it uh, and super excited to have that conversation. Well, with all your uh, world events, you've also run into some other luminaries. Uh, you had a comedic story. I don't know if you can uh, homogenize it a little bit for us. Uh, you want to tell us that one of, uh, that you were – Without, uh, uh, I guess, unwinding a little bit uh, with, uh, I think you ran into Dana Garvey? Oh, yeah, Dana, Dana Carvey, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. he's a fan. Who knew that? Dana Carvey is absolutely amazing. He, I, I believe he has a uh, uh, photographic memory because he knew more about this friend of mine than I certainly knew. And... Uh, it was, how, how would I say it? So Dana was playing drums. His brother uh, worked for Reebok at the time and played guitar. And he was in the, like, kind of like the house band uh, made up of Reebok staff. And uh, Dana was playing drums in this. So we happened to be in the bathroom. And Dana sees my friend who happened to be uh, an American record holder uh, and uh, uh, kind of a legendary personality himself. And starts going through his I'm not worthy routine. But... I think my my friend had, oh, I would just say that, you know, he had an easily a, a good six or eight too many beers by that time and had no idea who, what Dana was about, or what he's up to. All I knew that everyone was laughing at him and he wanted to fight. So it, it was, and then, you know, when he's wanting to fight Dana Carvey, that's even more funny because Dana Carvey starts doing a Muhammad Ali impersonation. And so. Oh, we, that sounds so. That we so we could barely stand up, and he's like, he wanted, he's like taking it outside, and and uh, it was a, it became a legendary experience, and kind of took on a life of its own. Because I now yep. see this person, and, and some of his athletes would come by and go, "Did you hear the story about him and Dana Carvey?" It's like, yeah, yeah, I was kind of there. <laughs> you know, you know, Ted, those are the things though that get you through. You know, the you, you know because the events are long, the support is long. When you help out with camps, the hours can sometimes be long. The paperwork can be long. But when you have those comedic moments, it makes it all worthwhile. I, I, I will share just one with you. I, so you and I both know this, this guy by the name of uh, Tommy Nohill. He's, he's, he was an ambassador for Hoka, but more notably, he was an excellent steeplechase and cross-country runner, missed the Olympics two times by, I guess, a, you know, a few hundredths of a second. I don't know who does that. But but Tommy was, you know, you know, from a small town in Long Island and he'd be going out to these track meets in the Midwest 
and all the guys in the neighborhood would be like, you know, you're going to Iowa. What do you want to go there for? They got no streetlights. <laughs> <laughs> so every time Coach Trunkus, uh, who ran the camp, and Tom, every time we, we got this running thing with the streetlights, it's just, it's funny. You know, you don't even have to say, you just say the streetlights and that, and then it just sort of brings it back. Right, exactly. You kind of need some of those like funny moments that you can then bring back year after year. I have to say, though, that first year with that event with Dana Carvey, you know, you're sleep deprived anyhow. And I'd wake myself up in the middle of the night laughing about that one. So that was, uh, that kept me entertained for a while. Well, before, you know, before we close it, we're, hit, we're hitting the, you know, the 35 minute mark. Is there anything else that you would want to share that you think is really cool or interesting that uh, the, um, you know, the listener audience would like to know about, you know, uh, sports medicine, chiropractic, athletes, anything that you'd like to share that you think. Oh, and one thing I did want to share that, you know, when we talked about this, you and I, is, and I think we both have this, we, <laughs> I think we both share this. We are just looking for answers to help people get better faster as if it was our brother, our mother. Uh, we're not looking to, you know, just do a technology for the sake of doing a technology. And, and unfortunately, we've both run into some people that it's sexy to, you know, do this uh, procedure where you're cutting somebody up and stitching them together and adding all these tech. And sometimes it's necessary. Don't get me wrong. But I think sometimes there's a rush to do the big, you know, kahuna before you've tried some of the more basic things that, you know, can be done. Uh, anyway. Well, I, I agree with that. And the, and the moreover, though, is that once you go to the kahuna, you can never go back to try the other things effectively. Exactly. So oftentimes you, the, your secondary opportunities just aren't going to be, they're not either a possibility or they're just not going to be as effective. So there, there's a lot of stuff out there. And, you know, I think that, and I think you and I talked about this, where there's so many different fantastic modalities out there that are super useful. And there's not one of them that I found that is a total home run for everyone. I think healthcare is such an individualized aspect. And it's really interesting that the, the kind of the more I've been in it, the more I truly feel that the patient kind of has a good idea of what's going to work best for them. And, and sometimes even if they don't, you still have to go with it because Studies show what's going to work best for the patient is that thing that the patient is going to have what's called a therapeutic alliance with. In other words, they're going to join in with the success of their care. And they have to believe in it. So if they don't believe in it, it doesn't matter if it's surgery, if it's some other, you know, magic wand that is a new technology that's come out. Uh, unless they believe in it, they're probably not going to have a good outcome. But I do think there are some great new modalities out there that are really kind of fun, exciting, you know, from a, we talked a little bit, extracorporeal shockwave therapy, I think is something that I think is going to be getting a little bit more uh, playtime, uh, radio frequency therapy, such as uh, Winback and Techar, I think are going to be hitting that direction. We talked PEMF, pulse electromagnetic frequency and then, and then you also mentioned, tell briefly the listeners about the blood restrictive uh, training stuff that you do. Oh, yeah. So they can look that up, too. Yeah, absolutely. So acronym is BFR, uh, which is blood flow restriction. Uh, and you can use it for rehabilitation, for training. And uh, uh, there are a variety of different ways that you apply it. 
Uh, one concept is that you just use it on the injured limb. Uh, to me, I do the exact opposite. I use it on every limb but the injured limb because I'm really looking for the systemic effect. You get both local and systemic. In other words, it affects so it's your whole shunting? body. Is it a shunting then when you deprive the oxygen to the, to the limb by restricting the flow? Do you, a shunting effect or a, or is it kind of a compensatory effect that, that is, the, is the theoretical behind this whole... Uh, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's more of a theoretical, uh, uh, a compensation effect. So mm -hmm. if you're restricting blood flow to your extremities, your large muscles, so you're putting yourself into an, like an anabolic threshold and fatiguing out different muscle types. And most of us, uh, that especially for your aging athletes and for an athlete who is injured, whether they're aging or not, they can't handle load. Well, using the blood flow restriction cuffs, you can apply a great deal of work by limiting the oxygen supply to the muscle without having to lift a heavy load. So, for example, if you're doing a, uh, a squat, instead of doing a squat with, say, 180 pounds, uh, you might do a squat with 50 pounds. And, uh, and you'll feel equally fatigued, but your risk level of getting hurt is much low, lower because, you, well, you don't have the 180 pounds. So you don't have that load on your joint. You don't have the shear across the joint onto the ligaments and the cartilage. And so it's a lot safer to do. But more importantly, you also have, are tricking your body, and you can get this huge, like, astronomical bump up in growth hormone, anywhere from 3 to 30 times uh, testosterone, a 1 to 5 times increase. And uh, the thing I think is really interesting, particularly for, like, chronic conditions as well as post-operative conditions that you get a, a bump up with this called a uh, vascular endothelial growth factor. So it helps create new uh, vasculature, which ironically, this is used predominantly for cardiac rehab in Japan, which you would think it'd be a stroke maker when you just think about it. Yeah, it, it sounds really cool, Ted. I want to hear more about it because I noticed that, uh, you know, after a busy clinic day, I sometimes just don't have the snap to hit to hit the workout. So if I uh, get a chance and an opportunity to get out to Portland, Oregon, and I, I got a boa, a boa constrictor around me, well, you'll know I, I took maybe <laughs> step too far. <laughs> well, you know, one, one thing that's nice about these workouts, instead of doing, you know, for me, what would normally be an hour to hour and a half weight workout, I can synthesize it down to 12 to 20 minutes. And, uh, and it's, a, awesome. it's, a, it's a workout to complete failure, which if I did that in my normal workout, if I worked out to failure, I'm probably going to be out of commission for a couple of months. So here I can do another workout later in the day. If people want to find out more about you, Ted, where would they go and some of the stuff that you do? <laughs> well, they can certainly contact me directly, uh, uh, tf at mm -hmm. nomadicdr.com, or they can reach out and ask me any question they want on any question it's an app you can find in the app and load it up and you're going to find a variety of experts including yourself uh, uh dr pearl is on there so you can ask him any question and uh as well as a whole wide variety of other experts and and lead athletes that are part of this uh, app platform so fascinating platform i hope you know people will take a look at it i i love it and i've tried it and uh even have thought of uh kind of a fail safe hey if 
I didn't answer your question. I am going to give you the QR code for this app. If you if you left and you had something occur to me, and you can ask not only me but a panel of experts, as long as you don't mind, you know, sharing that information. But I think you can do them anonymously as well. Right. So I think so, it's a perfect uh, opportunity for people. Yeah, I've done the same thing with patients. You know, when I'm on the road, so and I may not have their chart in front of me, but they'll yep. get their answer, their question answered by me as well as a, a huge panel of of experts uh, uh, are smarter, more than likely smarter than I am. So I think it's a great opportunity to, to delve yourself into some great mind thought leaders. Well, man, thanks so much, Ted. Uh, I've learned so much just the last couple of weeks, getting to know you a little bit better, listening to some of your other podcasts, and uh, you've been extremely generous with your time. And I look forward to meeting you in person uh, out there. Hopefully, uh, you, I think we'll get to meet in Seattle. There's a, a yeah. meeting uh, coming up. A podi- I'm in a American Co- uh, Podiatric uh, Academy of Sports Medicine, and we're having our 50th anniversary meeting. So I, I look forward to meeting you in person out there. Yeah, I'm planning on it. Super excited about that program. Wow, spectacular content. So I think it's, it's a really fantastic program. Thanks again, Ted, and uh, look forward to meeting you in person. All right. Cheers. Thank you for having me. Yep. Well, that was a great talk with Ted Fortham. Uh, I look forward, you know, down the pike of some more discussions with him because he's a real thought leader in the sports medicine world. And uh, we look forward next time to having goalie Andrew Dykstra, a former goalie with DC United, talk to us a little bit about sports conditioning uh, occupational therapy and some coaching projects he's doing and transcending from the soccer field. Till next time, this is Dr. Ben Pearl with Fit Foot You. <laughs>